0: In a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig putting in the hard yards ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Joco Hydrate sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy, supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Joco Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance, and not to mention taste bloody good. So, head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits All in Caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. <sticks and telephone noise>
1: It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world, we'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go.
0: Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, I have a guest uh, located in, in the US. Actually, mate, whereabouts are you located? Whereabouts exactly in the US? Uh,
1: Alabama, so
0: the southeast. Oh Porsche yeah, it. sweet home Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> He's just uh, ha- uh, just spoken up right now. His name is Aaron Hanohano, which is uh, yeah, very. Very uh, Hawaiian, which we'll definitely talk about shortly. But just quickly on his career, he was in the Marine Corps as a uh, Huey uh, crew chief. Now his story goes a little bit deep uh, and is connected with us Aussies, uh, especially in Afghanistan. Now he's involved in an incident on 30th of August uh, 2012, where Murd McDonald and Nate Gallagher were tragically uh, killed in a, heli- a helicopter crash, and. Aaron was one of the crew chiefs inside that helicopter when it went down, uh, a fallen angel as they call them. So we'll definitely talk about this story down the track because it's just, you know, it's connected with me because Mur being one of my good friends, again, working with the Australian Commandos, which, mate, Aaron, mate, welcome to the show. How you doing?
1: Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm good. Like I said earlier, this is my, my first podcast, so a little nervous, I guess, but um, it's cool to be on here. Yeah.
0: Ah, all good, mate. As I said, mate, we've you've got a pretty interesting story, not to mention linking up with the Australian Commandos. And what I one thing I forgot to say is that you are now a current uh, cop as well. So, mate, we'll definitely you might have a sure. couple of five zero stories we can talk about. And uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, we'll get into it for sure,
0: <laughs> mate. What I want to do quickly, let's get back to younger Aaron. As I said, your last name, Hanohano, Hano, is uh very yep. uh Hawaiian, born in Hawaii, mate. Run us through these younger days of growing up in Hawaii and uh, yeah, mate, uh, schooling, etc. And what's led to you joining the USMC?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, funny actually, uh, so I was born in Hawaii, uh, my mom. My grandmother and my mom in the, the late '80s moved to Hawaii uh, from Alaska. My mom's native Alaskan, uh, so they moved to to Hawaii late '80s. My my grandmother was a taxi driver, and you know Magnum PI. I don't know if you guys are familiar with. Yep, yes. Yeah. Mustache. '80s '80s shows <laughs> uh, was big in in Honolulu uh, on Oahu. Was popping. so my my grandmother and and mom moved there for for the. For the uh, the money opportunity as a cab driver. And uh, so my mom was in high school and uh, met my father, who's native Hawaiian. And grew up on Oahu. So they met, you know, young love. A few years later, along came I. They, uh, you know, relationships like they do sometimes, you know, didn't work out. So my mom ended up after, uh, you know, a couple of years moving back to Alaska. So that's actually where I grew up. I grew up with my mom. Visited Hawaii, you know, periodically, summer breaks of school and whatnot. But the majority of the time, I uh, I grew up in Alaska. So yeah, it was cool, man. I uh, just fighting bears and stuff. Yeah, yeah, fighting bears, polar bears, <laughs> mushing, uh, dog mushing at school, all those. Yeah, so we the majority of my you know younger uh, childhood I was in Anchorage, It's kind of the bigger metropolitan area in in Alaska, kind of. I guess what you'd call a city compared to most cities, not really. It's more of a town, but, um, it was cool, man. Uh, kind of lower income, you know, grew up in a trailer, most of my my childhood, uh, kind of a, the hood of Alaska, I guess. Um, but it was fun, you know, did a lot of hunting and snowboarding all the, all the winter activities, hunting, fishing, whatever. Whatever Alaska has to offer, I was out there trying to do it as much as possible. But
0: Yeah, I man, it was fun. Did you have any uh, siblings?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've got all half siblings. So I've, I've got a, a younger sister. She's about 10 years younger than I am. Uh, she still lives in Alaska. So my mom and my stepdad uh, had my sister. And then my dad and my stepmother, they had my brother. I have a half-brother and a half-sister. They're all off to college now. Um, my sister in Alaska is a now, you know, doing, doing adult things.
0: Growing up in Alaska, mate, how was your, your schooling? I guess, you know, we, we talk about us military guys or cops, etc. We never applied ourselves at uh, at school. And I guess that's the reason why we head in the directions that we go. How'd you go, mate? In trouble or anything? Or?
1: Yeah. So, um, School for me wasn't a a priority. I guess (laughs) a lot of us, you know, I I did the the bare minimum to get by. You know, Uh, I did just enough to be able to play sports. You know, you got to maintain a a C or above. uh, You know, so I did that to play football, basketball, hockey, whatever it was. So yeah, I wasn't a A or you know straight straight A student by any means. Uh, Didn't didn't take school, all that seriously. But yeah, from a pretty young age, I, I think I was, I don't know, 12, 13 uh, was when I kind of knew that I wanted to go into the military. Um, so, you know, I did just enough to to make that happen. Uh, for the Marine Corps, it's one of the few branches uh, in the, the armed forces in the United States, anyways, that you have to have an actual high school diploma. Uh, I think the Navy, the Army, just require you to have a GED, but the Marine Corps, which is what I, I knew I wanted to do, uh, require that you have a diploma. So, you know, I think I was 16 or so. Um, you know, if, uh, through a, a series of uh, events, I ended up moving back, not moving back, but moving in with my father at Hawaii uh, my last year of school. And, uh, you know, I, I was dead set. I'm going into the Marines. So I, Ended up doing, it's was like a, they had a program there at some community college where you could, you could test out of classes uh, for high school. So I took all the tests that I could uh, and ended up getting my high school diploma and graduated early. So I, I think I graduated uh, with a diploma, I think I was just turned 17, maybe. Uh, and... In the United States, to unless in the military, you can be 17 years old uh, with your parents' consent. So I had to get my my dad and my mom uh, to both agree to let me go off to the to Marine Corps. But they both signed off on it, and that's what I wanted to do. So the way I wanted.
0: Yeah, where does this like where does the thought of the Marine Corps come to your mind at the age of 13? And is there any? Have you got any family history within the Marine Corps, wars, or etc.?
1: You no. Know, I mean, not the Marine Corps. You know, I've got uncles and, and a grandparent that was in the military. My, my great-grandfather, uh, kind of a big influence in my life. Uh, he was in the Coast Guard, actually, serving Korea, uh, the Korean War. So, I mean, that's really the the extent of the, the military. You know, like I said, I have some uncles and stuff, but I wasn't real close with them. I don't know where where the Marine Corps thing came from um I probably saw one of those stupid recruiting commercials fighting the dragon <laughs> It's stuck uh, the the main thing I want is you know I wanted to be a pilot uh, and uh I wanted to fly helicopters specifically, but in the military you gotta you gotta go to college and do all that stuff I was I had zero zero interest in going in, into college, you know so. Um, the crew chief thing, you know, I talked to a recruiter and he was actually a Huey crew chief, the recruiter that recruited me, Uh, you know, talked it up. Like it was the the coolest thing since sliced bread, you know, and get to fly in a helicopter and shoot machine guns and, you know, launch rockets and stuff. So, you know, I was was pretty focused on that. Yeah. It's, I guess the, the genesis of the whole Marine Corps and, air crew thing started.
0: So, um, when were you born? What year? 1992? 90,
1: 91. 91.
0: 91. So just bring it back, mate. obviously being uh, from the US, mate, uh, September 11, 2001. Yep. So you're only young at this stage. You're only 10 years old. Mate, did you have any concept of exactly what was happening that day or was it just like, this is just another day for another 10-year-old?
1: There was... You know, I knew something was going on. I was in fifth grade, I think, you know, we're in Alaska. It's uh, however many hours behind New York, I think five or six, six hours. So it was pretty early in the morning when, you know, when the, the planes hit the towers and uh, in Alaska or, you know, in my neck of the woods specifically, nobody really kind of had any idea. I remember walking out, uh, to the living room and my mom was in the living room watching TV and the news. You know, she's crying. I, I really had no idea, you know, the, the magnitude of what was going on. I don't think, I, to be honest, I don't know if she did either, but, uh, you know, you get to school and everybody's, you know, you could tell all the teachers are all, you know, weird uh, down and out. and All of us fifth graders are, you know. Oh, did you hear a train hit the, the world Trade? <laughs> train that? all sorts of crazy stuff but it, it took you know after you know several days and exactly you know
0: everybody's talking
1: about it at this point you know family and whatnot you kind of you know all the terrorists are attacking you know our country and you know we're, we're going to war so i mean you don't really know what's going on at that age but you kind of kind of get an idea I was somewhat aware of it, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, of course.
0: And uh, you definitely, you've definitely uh, found out down in the track, you know, when you deployed to Afghanistan. But uh, when that happened, me? In, uh, yeah, I was seventeen. Okay. And okay. you know, it, it's funny because I remember the day. I remember watching it on TV. Yes. Yeah. Again, being even 17, I didn't even know where Afghanistan was. I didn't even know who Osama bin Laden was. You know, I had no concept of – I was too busy chasing girls and watching cartoons in the morning type thing. So, But at the end of the day, it became one of the reasons why I joined the Defence Force here in Australia as well because, you know, eventually I got to figure out what what exactly what it was and what a terrorist was and where Afghanistan was and ended up there as well. But, mate, so – you join at the age of seventeen. This is in two thousand and nine. So the Iraq yep. war's in full swing. That's pretty much yep. done and dusted in a way. Um Afghan is kicking it kicked off. And, you know, they yep. kicked off uh within, you know, the month of um October, basically CIA went straight in and started riding horses around and all that type of stuff. And, you know, as I said, by the time you get in two thousand nine, it's in full swing and Afghan's starting to turn it on, whereas Iraq started to die off, Afghans started to turn it on from, you know, 2007-ish and onwards till 2012-13. Did you have any concept? Did you think you were going to
1: uh, deploy there eventually? Yeah. I mean, the the, the environment in the Marine Corps, uh, when I enlisted in 2000, 2009, I mean, everybody was, that's all, and what was on everybody's mind, you know, was, was theres you're going to go to boot camp. You're going to go to, you know, we call it a school. So you're, whatever you enlisted as your job, you're going to go, go to that school and, you know, expect to, to end up, you know, over there in the desert, you know, as soon as you get to your, your unit. So everybody was kind of assuming that we were going to go. And to be honest, I was pretty excited. You know, that's kind of, Going back to the whole reason I enlisted, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to you know, join the Marine Corps, but as time progressed, you know, as the older I got, uh, you know, like you said, Iraq was was a, uh, you know, late high school. That's Iraq was was going off. You know, I'm six, I'm seven, i eight. You know, and having friends or friends of friends that you know had enlisted and, and ended up in Iraq or the you know, dudes that. We knew that passed away. You know, it was <clears throat> um, it was a motivating factor for sure. So, you know, going back forward, um, you get to boot camp, and then, you know, that's all the drill with the talking about it. You know, we're going to be getting ready for war. Yada yada yada. So, yeah, it was expected, uh, and we were all kind of it's a crazy thing to be excited for, I guess. But you know, we were all kind of pumped to go. So.
0: That's what, yeah. what you joined for, isn't it? But mate, yeah. before we crack on with Afghanistan, let's get back to you. So you've enlisted, uh, head down to boot camp, mate, and you've signed a contract for an air crew. Run me through boot yep. camp, mate. Let's go through the the process and how you found it as well.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess a step before that, during like the recruiting process, I mean, the, the, we have an aptitude test called the ASVAB. Uh, I'm sure you guys have something the same. So essentially you take this this test and it you get a score and it qualifies you for whatever jobs that you can and what it sets, right? So for air crew you have to have, you know, a specific score for infantry, you have to have, you know, a specific score, so on and so forth. So lucky enough to to test and, you know, get the score for air crew. Otherwise, you know, if you don't do so hot all those tests, you know, they can you do what's called open contract and you end up at Needs of the Marine Corps, you know, you end up infantry. Well, to be <laughs> honest, infantry for you know the ASVAB score for rank wear infantry is pretty. It's not super low like you would say. Um, <laughs> if they have some pretty high standards there, uh, I don't like to talk down on my, uh, you know, my <laughs> my my brethren that have to walk around on on God's green earth, but um, yeah, so enlisted go to boot camp you you, you know i think i'd watched full metal jacket probably oh, yeah. i don't know three times prior to <laughs> camp. there was this documentary called our ears open eyeballs click and it's like a it's a call it a ditty something that the, the drill instructors say uh, but i watched that several times and i was to be honest was fucking terrified to go boot camp you know i was just You play football or basketball, whatever, and you get yelled at, and it's a whole different different ball game when you get get camp. But anyways, you get there, you know, you go to the get to the airport. Joe instructor comes and picks you up on the bus, and you you got to stick your head between your legs, and you're not allowed to look up, and you get off, and Joe instructor is screaming at you and whatnot. But it was. After you know a couple of weeks, you just kind of get into the swing of things, just like anything else. Yeah. You know, so, um, it was good. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Uh, School, you know, there's a lot of, in the Marine Corps, and you know, stems from from the Navy. Uh, we're, we're a branch of the Navy, uh, department of the Navy. The men's department is like to joke, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of naval naval tradition, uh, and you get. Yeah, you you're well versed in all of these naval and marine corps traditions, and you know it's it's pretty cool. You know the lineage that Marines from World War One all the way you know, to to where we're at now it's pretty cool. Um, but boot camp was easy. You know, it's not easy. I won't say it was easy, but you know, you just, you just do what you to Just play to do the game, yeah. Play the game, you know. Um, so from boot camp, uh, you go to what's called an MCT. But if you're an infantry guy, you go to, you know, your infantry training, whatever. For all of us POGs, persons other than grunts, uh, we go to, to MCT and you learn, you pretend to be a, a grunt for a couple of weeks, learn all your, uh, your basic Marine Corps war fighting skills. And then for me, after that, uh, you go off to air crew school. So you you go from sunny California to sunny Pensacola, Florida to a naval, uh, naval base, uh, air station, Pensacola. And I forget how long it is. Basic air crew school. Um, I think it's a couple months long, but it's just a, you know, it's just a haze fest or however many months, you know, you're swimming, uh, you're PTing all day, you learn very like, they call it air, air crew school, but you learn very few things about how to fly in anything, you Yeah. Know, put you in a, what's called a hero dunker, um, so it's a big shell of a helicopter and they drop it in the pool and yeah. you gotta figure out how to get out of it, uh, which is fun. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's kind of scary, but
0: I've done it a few times.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know what it's, Yeah, uh, sucks. The, the goggles and you know, trying to figure out how to not die and squeeze out of a tiny hole. It's, you know, it's kind of exhilarating, but um, yeah. So you do that, and that's uh, a few months long. And that that school is what determines what platform or aircraft you're going to go to. So it's a they make an order of merit list based on you know how well you perform in that school. So, I think our class had, you know, 30 guys, um, probably 10 Navy guys and 20 Marines. And out of the 20 Marines, you put in a wish list. Hey, I want to go to the East Coast of the United States, the West Coast of the United States. Um, well, no, that's the same. Code. So, it's just platform, right? So, you've got C-130s, right? fixed wing C-130s. You can go be a crew chief. Load boxes and, and whatever they do. It would be an Osprey V22 crew chief, CH53 uh, crew chief, CH46s. We had those at one time, and then Hueys. And at that time, uh, Hueys were were kind of the, the sought after platform, right? All the other guys do what's called assault support. Uh, so moving, moving stuff all over the place. Hueys were kind of predominantly a cast platform, close air support platform. We can do assault support, you know, which we'll get into uh, you know, August 30th was kind of assault support oriented, but for the majority of the time, you know, we're we're just doing close air support, you know, putting rounds on bad guys. So that's kind of where everybody wants to go, right? Uh, but there's very few slots. So, you know, the better you do in the class, you have a higher, higher chance of going Hueys if they have slots. So, uh, what's funny is I didn't even put on my on my wish list for some stupid reason. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be a, an Osprey crew chief because there's a new, you know, tilt rotor bird thing, and it was it seemed cool to me. Um, a bunch of dudes were crashing and dying and stuff, but it seemed like a cool adventure. So I put Ospreys. 53s, CH 53s, and then Hueys were at the bottom of my list. And I ended up with Hueys. So, you know. <laughs> but that's kind of it's funny, like the, my whole Marine Corps career, which is you know, I was only there for five years, but uh wherever I wanted to go is not where I wanted to go. I always to the Marine Corps I always had a, a different path set for me. But thankfully, you know, the, those courses kind of led me straight. Uh, I'm thankful for, for the time I had. It was, it was pretty fun. So anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. aircrew school, Hueys. Um, and then, uh, Mate, just
0: quickly, what's the, lo- yeah. when you talk about the Hueys and you said they're more of an attack type style and just get some, Yeah, what, what, what what's the loadout on these things?
1: So it, it depends solely on the mission, right? Um, at the time when I enlisted, we had what was called the, uh, the UH-1 November. It was a two-bladed helicopter, twin-engine helicopter. Uh, but it was, it was pretty power-limited, right? So you – primarily the loadout is a, a Gauss-17, which is a minigun, and then a 50 cal on the other side of the helicopter. and Then you have rocket pods that come out under the helicopter. Oh, fuck you. So that was the primary loadout. And then, if you are carrying stuff around, if you're carrying passengers or cargo or whatever, you you exchange the big big guns and the rocket pods for little M240s, right? Because uh, you you don't have enough power to carry the the big guns and the, the rockets. So, primarily, like I said, gas 17, which is 762, you know, 3,000 rounds per minute, many gun, and then you got the at the time it was a gas 16, 50 cal. So there was a mod use that was outfitted for, for aerial platforms. And then we had 2.75-inch rocket pods on there. But nice. Now, so from the the UH-1 November, which you know we'll, we'll talk about this going forward, but just to touch on the UH-1 November, we transitioned shortly after I got to my first line unit. Uh, we transition transitioned to the, the four-bladed platform, right? So I had four blades instead of two. Uh, bigger engines, uh, the same engines that are in the Apache, same engines that are in the Blackhawk. Uh, we all kind of service-wide switched switched over to the same type of uh, power plant, and uh, has a lot more power. So you could carry, you know, fully loaded out for the most part. You know, altitude, heat, all that stuff dependent. Uh, for the most part, you could still carry passengers and have, you know, a 50 cal minigun and rocket pods on there. So, anyways, yeah, back to
0: yeah. Just, just on that as well. Uh, so we're talking two pilots and two crew chiefs.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. At, at minimum for, you know, any type of, especially overseas, you know, you're know you flying with two crew chiefs, one on, on each side of the aircraft, man in each gun. And then, yeah, it's a two pilot, uh, aircraft.
0: And how many packs can you have in there on top of that?
1: So like I said, it's kind of weight dependent, right? Uh, Altitude dependent, the hotter it gets, the less dense the air is less lift. You can, you can, uh, you you can perform with. So, um, I mean, we, we've had as many as 10 people in there and you're at that point, it's not even weight, you know, power, power uh, dependent. It's how many people you can fit in that small cabin, right? So you got 10 fully loaded dudes, especially, you know, Operators, You know, they got rucks on and guns, long guns and whatever else they're carrying. You know, we've got dogs in there, all sorts of stuff. So you could, could probably get away with 10, 10 dudes. Um, but I mean, most of the time we're carrying six, six or so people.
0: Yep. Yep. And did you, uh did you crew chase ever fight on who was going to get the 50 or the minigun?
1: No. So when, when you get over there, like overseas, uh, um, They'll put you in what's called a combat crew, right? So you get two pilots that generally for the most part stay the same, the majority of the, the deployment. Sometimes it gets switched up. And then you'll get, you know, the same two crew chiefs fly primarily uh together. So you guys you, you kind of figure out your what what side of the aircraft you want to be on, right? So I, I preferred the the minigun. Oh yeah. Uh,
0: now we're talking.
1: It's it's a laser beam gone. Uh, <laughs> I prefer the minigun, and then my crew chief on the right side, you know, he typically preferred to shoot the fifty. And, and some, you know, you have to do currency checks, so like sometimes we'd switch, and you know, I'll be on the fifty just to make sure I still know how to shoot the damn thing. Um, but for the most part, you you find what you like and you stick to it. So yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's cool.
0: So uh, back to uh, you finished the two months of crew, uh, air, air, crew, crew school. air crew school.
1: Yeah, so you finish that, you you leave there knowing what, what platform you're gonna go to. So um found out I was going Huey, so that you only go to the West Coast, right? So there's you know, platform schools where you're gonna go and learn how to be a crew chief, right? Uh, they're kind of spaced all over the country. For us Huey's, luckily, we're in San Diego, California, at like Camp Pendleton. So I go back to the, the West coast and go back to Cali. And before I get to my crew chief school, right. uh, We have to go through what's called seer school. I'm sure you guys have, you know, seer school. Everybody mostly does uh, survival, evasion, resistance. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 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 So you just learn how to, I mean, it's, it's just fuck fuck games for two weeks. Uh, You know, you get, get slapped around and, they try to tell you, they're, they're too, and to be honest, it, it is pretty good training. It's probably one of the best schools that I've been to, uh, but it's, you know, in the event you get, you know, taken as a POW or a, a hostage or whatever overseas, and they give you techniques on, you know, how to, you know, how to not give up too much information, sensitive information, or, you know, stall them long enough to, get rescued or communicate with your other prisoners, you know, Morse code and all that stuff. So it's fun. You know, uh, the field field portion of it is, is, uh, kind of sucks, but you, you learn a lot and you're out there eating, uh, berries and pine cones and, you know, starving yourself for three days or however long it is, but it's fun. Yeah, it was good. So from Sear school, uh, which is two weeks, I ended up, uh, at the air station on camp Pendleton for, for crew chief, crew chief school. So it's kind of broken up into two parts, uh, as a crew chief, if you're a, you're a mechanic, um, and, you know, your, your base level mechanic or right, power plant and drag trains, so you learn how to work on rotor heads and engines and drive trains and all that stuff. That's your first part of the whole course. Uh, because if you know the event, you go down somewhere, you have to make an emergency landing for maintenance. You have to be able to be the one to the helicopter if needed. So, um, yeah. So do that. That's a couple months long as well, and then you get to the actual crew chief portion of it. So you, you start flying. Uh, you learn how to. You start off with basic type stuff, you know, just flying around, learning how to call for traffic. So other, other helicopters, airplanes in the sky. Um, and then you slowly progress in a terrain flight, learning how to fly low Um NOE map of the earth, anything below, I think it's five hundred feet is what they, what they consider at um, So you're, you're calling out obstacles, you're calling out, you know, uh, confined area Weather means uh, having a, cause you guys, as the pilot, for the pilot, right? They've got, you know, the cockpit, you've got big, so in the Huey, you've got what's called AVI racks, you got big avionics bays behind you. You can't see anything behind you as a pilot, right? So you only see 180 degrees in front of you. Everything behind the helicopter, that's our responsibility, right? So we're sticking our heads outside, making sure, you know, we're not running into trees or hit rocks or about to roll over, uh, things like that. So you progress, right? So you get to train, fly, and then you start working on the cool stuff. Start flying with NVGs, um, start shooting guns, getting acclimated to weapon systems on there, learn how to take the guns apart, clean them, You know operations, how to, you know, the rocket pods work, how the minigun works, the fifty cal, all that stuff. Um, you go through a crash course on that, learn how to do that. And then you start shooting at night, which is kind of the the culmination of everything. It's you know it's kind of the bread and butter. So you're overseas the majority of the times so that we you know go on cast missions, it's all at night, right? So you have to be proficient at wearing NVGs and shooting lasers and operating the FLIR and being able to put rounds on rounds on target. And uh, so yeah, you go through that and then at some point they say you know, you're know, you good enough to be a crew chief and they give you some gold gold wings which means that you're a a basic air crewman and uh yeah you're off to the fleet you go so you at that point when you you're getting close to finishing you graduate you, you put in your wish list so here's a, another instance of yeah, yeah. needs of the marine corps i put at, at the time i was uh, I was dating a, a girl when we were in, at this point we were engaged uh, she was over on the east coast going to college so I you know I was going to the east coast that's all I wanted to do I wanted to be close to her you know so I put North Carolina as my my top of the you know top of my list and then followed by the west coast and then I think they had maybe Hawaii at that time I think that was they had gone I don't know but Anyways, and of course, I got stationed on the West Coast. Not yeah. where I wanted to go. And it ended up being a good good time. So. Whereabouts uh, on the West Coast is it? So Camp Pendleton's kind of, it's just north of San Diego. Yeah. Um, kind of in between San Diego and Los Angeles. Big, giant, you know, bay, desert base in the middle of nowhere. Um, but, yeah, so I ended up going from from the training training uh, squadron over to my first line unit, HMOA 267, uh, the Stiggers. And, uh, yeah, man. So ended up in the fleet.
0: And what, what year was this? 2000?
1: This was late 2009. So, you know, I went through boot camp and all the schools. A lot of guys were running into the issue, you know, backlog. Because, you know, during that time with the kickoff of Afghanistan, everybody and their brother was joining Work. Yeah. Everybody wanted, to um, so all of the schools, you know, with all these people going through boot camp, you know, they didn't have enough room. So a lot of people were, you know, they get to their A school and they sit there and backlog for several months, waiting to just go through, you know, basic, basic, uh, specialty course, you know. But luckily, I just breezed through all of it and uh ended up in my first line unit. So yeah, that was that was late. 2009, I want to say October November time frame.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So you get to this unit, uh, Camp Pendleton. Hey, what are you yeah. doing for the next? Uh, you know, until you deploy to Afghanistan, what are you doing? Just uh, training, and who's who's your who's your clientele? Who's your passengers? Who are you flying? Yes. Yeah.
1: So my first unit, uh, two six seven. Uh, you first when you know basic crew chief. You call them all the new guys. were call them nuggets, right? New guy in training, and it's. The, the whole haze fest thing starts all over again. You we know, <laughs> you got out there balls early in the morning, uh, you know, four 30 in the morning. We, we have to, on the, on the helicopters, they have fuel, fuel sumps, right? So on the bottom side of the aircraft, they have these little ports, and you, know, you have to take a fuel sample every morning. There's four of them. You imagine there's 16 plus helicopters on the line, uh, that's your job for the next however many months uh, is, you, know, you go out there and you take fuel samples and they make you do the whole, you know, Don and Pony show and make you wear you know, all the PPE and stuff and running around like a lunatic and, you know, getting yelled at. So you do just dumb shit like that until you, uh, you know, you have ratings as a, as a mechanic or crew chief. So your plane captain is the first, first milestone, right? It means you can inspect a helicopter and ensure that it's safe for flight. So once you get that rating, you're no longer a nugget. So that's what every new guy, as soon as you get there, that's that's your goal is to make plane captain. So yeah, for the first few months, you're you're just learning how to be a, a mechanic, um, and then you also have the added responsibility of being a crew chief and flying. So you're you're going out on training flights and you know sharpening those skills, you know, learning how to better fire the weapon systems, operate them, Uh, you talk ons to the pilots, things like that. So that, that first, um, that first unit, so 267, I was there for, I don't know, six months or so. Uh, Got rated, you know, got my plane captain, all that stuff. Did all my basic crew chief qualifications. Shortly thereafter, we, when I talked about it, we had that UH one November, that two bladed helicopter. That's what I started in. so that's when I started flying in. All my training was in there, in a the November as we call it. We transitioned to the the four blade Huey. And we were one of the first units in the fleet to get get the new helicopter right off the production floor. You know, it still had that new car smell. Um and it was I mean they're badass one of the coolest helicopters uh, in the military for sure. So we were all, you know, super excited. And, uh, you know, T-67 was about to deploy 469, which is where I ended up, um, HMI 469, which is who I deployed with to Afghanistan. uh, They were still, they still have the old helicopters, but they were getting new ones, you know, in, in a few months' time. So they started... You know, bringing over guys that were experienced on the new helicopter to kind of train everybody up. I was the only Yankee UH-1 uh, Yankee crew chief, rated crew chief from and plane captain. So I, I went over to that unit uh, to to help stand them up with the new helicopter. So went over there, uh, started you know getting those guys uh, spooled up and. Going to Afghanistan at that time wasn't even in the cards yet for that, for our unit. Shortly, though, shortly after getting, getting to that unit, we, you know, we got the, the order or whatever, you know, hey, you guys are going to be deploying to, to Afghanistan. Um, we're looking at, you know, spring spring deployment, uh, so March time frame. Uh, so you need to spend the next year getting all spooled up. Mind you, we have a brand new helicopter that none of these guys have ever, you know, flown in. Pilots aren't even experienced with them, uh, so yeah, it was a big undertaking. You know, in less than twelve months, we had to switch platforms. We had to get all the maintainers, all the mechanics, spooled up on how this thing works, uh, and then we had to get all the crew chiefs and the pilots spooled up on how to fly this thing and employ it in combat. Which I think only one other unit had, maybe maybe two, two other units had used that aircraft in combat, in RAF Uh So it was kind of trial and error. Right. So we're uh we're late into two thousand um uh, two thousand eleven. And uh you know, we start getting the list of, you know, who's deploying, who's not. We had not only a, an Afghanistan deployment going going downrange, we had a you know what a Mew is a marine expeditionary unit.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So they take a um a contingent of, you know, Hueys, Cobras, 53s, 46s from all over, you know, all over the different squadrons and they put them, plop them on a boat and then they just float them around the ocean. That's kind of the, the nation's uh, contingency force, right? If there's something going on in, we'll say Israel, you know, they f- float a Mew over there and you've got infantry guys, you've got, you know, uh, aviation units ready to to deploy anywhere in the world. So we had a mu going out, and then we had the deployment going to Afghanistan. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on at the same time. Shortly before we deploy, right? Um, we had a mishap, so a training training accident. Um, a uh, we had a, a mission go out. So this is all pre deployment workup stuff. So everybody's you know kind of full steam ahead, uh, you know, training as we fight. So we're doing a lot of night, night missions, um, you know, shooting live ordnance, things like that. We have a place called El Centro, uh, California. It's out in the middle of the desert. And uh, they've got a big test firing range. We had a Huey and a Cobra um, go out there for a training exercise. They landed at a, uh, a FARP uh, forward arming and refueling point. So just a spot out in the desert where you can land and got fuel trucks and ammo and stuff out there. They land and uh it's midnight, one o'clock in the morning, I think, and uh they take off out of there. They're all in goggles and uh they shortly after takeoff, they they collided with each other. And uh so both both aircraft, you know, broke up in flight. Uh there was five people on the Huey, two in the Cobra. All of them perished. Uh one Corey Little was uh one of my one of my best friends, uh, best man at my wedding. Uh so he passed away in that. Um, you know, one of good friends, uh Nick Elliott, and then one of, you know, kind of our mentors, he, you know deployed to Iraq several times, Justin Everett. Uh, you know, he was, he was the, the instructing crew chief on that flight. He passed away. Um, our OIC for our flight line division. Um, uh, Michael Quinn, he's a captain, he was a pilot. In the hero, he passed away. Our executive officer was piloting the Cobra. He passed away. Uh, uh, one of our new lieutenants just showed up to the unit. Uh, and he passed away in that. So, so, yeah, we had seven guys that were uh, all, you know, supposed to be deploying downrange, you know, in a couple months' time. Uh, so, we had a big hole, you know, in the unit. So, we had to fill that, which at the time, I wasn't even supposed to deploy on that the deployment. But um, since those guys, you know, were no longer with us, we had to we had to adjust. And so, I ended up... Uh, getting on the list to go. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of my focus for the next few months.
0: How did that affect you though? You know, as you said, your best man passed away. A couple of other friends passed away. That's, that's got to take its toll, especially flying in a, in a helicopter. And as we know, over the past, we only had a helicopter a couple of months ago down here in Australia. uh, Four Australian soldiers were killed. And I think an Osprey went down not long before that, you know, that killed a couple of Marines as well. So, mate, how did it affect you, like, far out?
1: You know, in the back of your mind, it's always a possibility, right? It's just kind of the nature of the beast with, especially military aviation, um, you know, you, and especially at that time, uh, 2000, 2009 or 2014 was, even 2015, it was terrible for Marine Corps aviation. There's was um, so... Four Six Nine, the unit that I ended up with, uh, shortly before I got there, um, that unit stood up. So Four Six Nine never existed until two thousand and nine. Within a few months' time um, of them standing up at Cobra, they had a flight, same same place, going out to El Centro. On their way back, um, the I think it was this, the commanding officer and a new lieutenant wearing one of the Cobras coming back to the base and uh bad weather. They were on goggles. Uh, there was a C-130 out over the bay, San Diego Bay, uh, conducting the search and rescue. Uh, and that Cobra impacted the C-130. And they never, I think they located a, a little bit of debris, but never recovered any of the bodies. Um, so that's kind of where that 469, you know, started, which is a bad place to start, right? You know, mishap shortly Shortly after you stood up, fast forward to you know 2012. Not uh, three years later, uh, another mishap happens. Um, so you kind of hear, you know, we've had we had a Huey crash, uh, you know, with a a guy that I went to uh, crew chief school with. Luckily, he he survived, but the crew chief on the other side, um, I forget his name, I can't recall it, but uh, he passed away in that accident. And these guys, you know, all of the, the squadrons, you're right next door to each other. You know, you can throw a rock and hit the next squadron. So you know everybody. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's super close knit. that. Uh, so when these types of things happen, you know, we all kind of mourn together, uh, hit super close to home, but not that close, right? Well, well one of your best friends, you know, you, you go into work, you're called into work, and, you know, they tell you, you know, they're, We've had a mishap, but they don't tell you anything. Uh, you just look at the flight schedule, you know, and you look out on the line and you see what helicopters aren't there. And it's kind of, you know, you know what's happened. You know, you know who's on those aircraft. Uh, it's tough, man. I, I mean, but like I said, it's kind of the nature of the beast. You mourn. Um, but luckily for us, I think at that time, you know, we were ramping up for a deployment, we had something to take take our minds off of it, right? Um, you know, you got you to gotta readjust and, you know, get that frontside focus again and, and move on because, you know, in a couple months' time, you're going to be overseas and, you know, doing this shit for real. So, you know, we, we spent a couple weeks, you know, morning and kind of we didn't fly very much for the first couple weeks after that. And yeah, and then you just get back into the string of things. And, I mean, you never forget, obviously, but you, know, you just you just got to move on and get focus on on what's to come. So
0: yeah, so what's to come is Afghanistan. Now, mate, yeah. you get your deployment as you said it was March two thousand twelve. Is that right? Yeah. So March yeah. two thousand twelve jump on a plane, you head to Afghanistan, and this is uh, Camp Bastion, is it? Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, Camp Leatherneck, Camp Bastion, it's all one big base, right? So Bastion is uh, – did you guys land at Bastion? No, it's
0: it was more predominantly British.
1: Yeah, yeah. So half the base is, you know, all Marine Corps, right? Our, the Marine Corps' focus in Afghanistan was the Helmand, Helmand River Province. Um, so the main base there is, is Camp Leatherneck. Camp Bastion is primarily the airfield side of it, right? So you had Leatherneck, which is all the grunts and all the, you know, Marine Corps logistics guys and all of that stuff. Every well, Really all of the Marine Corps was on one side of the base. The other side is airfield. So you had, um, I think we had some French, uh, French fighters, fighter jet squadrons out there. You get the British CH forty seven Chinook squadron. The British had uh, Apaches out there, which Prince Harry was was there, same same deployment. I was. Oh yeah. Did you see? Him? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I did. Yeah. We, we, uh, just we,
0: quickly, how was he?
1: Super cool dude. Yeah. Uh, super humble uh just acted like one of the dudes, man, like you never it i mean if you had, had no idea who he was, um you wouldn't know you you would not yeah i mean you you're all expecting you know you he's a prince of you know whatever England or however that shit works, I don't know how the the monarchy works, but um uh, yeah, you're expecting him to be a you know pompous prick dude dude's cool, I mean, he was just one of the boys, you know and he loved flying and knew Apaches and walked us around the Apache and, um, you know, ate with them and it was cool. And we flew on a, one, I think we flew one mission together. Um, uh, flew escort for us. and uh, Yeah, it was cool. But anyways, so the Brits, <clears throat> the French, and then I, I think there are some other countries were on one side of the airfield you go to the far opposite side of the airfield, that's all the Marine Corps aviation assets. So you have Harriers, Here's and Cobras, 53s, uh, Ospreys. So yeah, that's where we lived for, you know, the entirety of the deployment. Very seldom did we go to the other side of the base because you had to catch a bus that took, you know, 30, 45 minutes to get over there just to, you know, go to the PX or whatever. So we just kind of stayed on our side of the base and did our thing. About. Yeah, yeah,
0: gotcha, mate. Now, what was the role for you guys? Um, You know, pretty much an air taxi and...
1: Yeah, so um, our primary mission, like I said, was, was close air support. So we did, uh, we responded to, to tips, troops in contact. So you have your flight line, we have a little tent out there where all the air crew hung out, um, and you, we had this big horn on a pole, and you know, the, the horn would go off. You had two different different towns. You had one uh, was like a tornado siren, or I don't know if you guys have tornadoes in Australia. No. you can imagine Yeah. Yeah. An ominous, loud, blaring siren sounds like that means it was a tick, right? So you're always hoping for ticks, not, you, you don't want, you know, friendly to be heard or whatever, but if you got a tick alarm, you knew you were going and you were going to shoot something. Uh, so you're always hoping for a tick alarm. The other ones were like a uh, emergency like an emergency assault support mission. So, you may be doing CASAVAC or, um, you know, dudes are low on ammo and you got to drop them. We, we call them speed balls. So, you know, body bag full of ammo and water and food. You fly over and kick, kick them out the side of the helicopter. You know, dudes are in a firefight or whatever. Um, you can't land. You don't want to get shot out of the sky. So, you just fly over and drop a, a body bag of, of ammo. So, you get missions like that every once in a while. But yeah, primarily close air support, right? And then you get scheduled. You get the schedule at the beginning of the day from um, from the top. You know, hey, at whatever uh, time and date we have, you know, some general or whatever flying out to some FOB or whatever. So you'd, you know, get ready for those flights or you'd have, uh, sometimes we'd have, you know, pre-scheduled assault you know, missions or sometimes you'd have secret squirrel missions, you know, the feds or, you know, three letter agencies would have us doing you know some crazy shit. Um, did some, I don't, I don't know what the, I didn't sign an NDA or anything. Uh, <laughs> we did some, some, some missions, uh, I'll just say on the border of, of Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. Um, uh, Uh, they were pretty pretty intense Uh, (laughs) but yeah I mean oh we did a lot of uh, drug addiction stuff so we yeah I mean did remove you know jangle trucks you know uh, it's a big semi looking trucks with crazy fucking beads hanging all around tassels
0: over the side yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. those things were full of dope I mean heroin and Opium and weed and all sorts of shit. We'd you know, get tasked to go out there and chase them down, and we'd, you know, we'd fly by and pop flares or you know, shoot out engine blocks and leave these dudes in the middle of the desert. And then we'd drop some grunts and they'd go light their shit on fire. And uh, I don't know, farm is fun, Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, we I mean we did all sorts of stuff, man, but. The the bread and butter uh, was was close air support, and that's all kind of what we we lived for yeah. out there. So,
0: so mate, run me back. Let's go back to I guess your first get out and troops in contact. You're sitting on that minigun, <laughs> mate.
1: Yeah. So, um, the f- first tick mission that I flew was actually in support of uh, some Brits. They were in a uh, in a firefight. At, I don't think they had taken any casualties or anything, thankfully. Um, but just uh, some, I, was, I think there was two guys uh, on a wall. The the Brits were over uh, hanging out in some compound. And they're getting shot at from two dudes on a wall. And this wall was like, I don't know, maybe 100 feet long. And both sides of it were like destroyed rubble. So it was just like a 100-foot length of wall out in the middle of this like desert area And there's two dudes standing behind it There's no besides the cover From the the Brits I mean you can see them plain as there They're just standing behind this thing sh- Shooting through these two murder holes Um so yeah I mean they In the their JTAC Uh gave us a nine line and You know cleared us for Uh, uh I don't think they cleared us for rockets So you know on an nine line Uh you get, you guys, yeah, yeah, of course, sure.
0: yeah. yep, nine lines,
1: yeah, yeah, so all for fire, right? You got nine lines of elevation, whatever. Uh, they clear you, you know, either rockets or rockets and guns, guns only. I think it was a guns only attack, um, and yeah. so it just so happens, you know, whatever you do, generally you'll do or- orbits, right, like two mile orbits. Um, and you'll offset from the target, right? Because we have a FLIR. So this big camera ball thing that can see, I don't know, I think we can see several miles, right? So these guys have no idea they're there. They're wrapped up in their little gunfight. We're orbiting two, three miles away. Um, you know, and this camera, you can, I mean, you can see facial expressions from two fucking miles away. It's incredible. Uh, but yeah, you're just watching these guys. And wherever you end up, you can imagine you're flying at, you know, a 1,000 feet. In a two mile orbit, right? Whichever side of the helicopter ends up when you get the cleared hot call uh, is just just so happens to be the lucky guy that gets to yeah you know, yeah first. Uh, so on that that initial engagement, uh, mind you, I've never shot a you know fired a shot manger in, in, in my whole life. Uh, so I was kind of hoping because my crew chief at the time, uh, Greg Westoff. Uh, he had done several uh, Iraq deployments, you know, he'd done a bunch of air medals and things leading up to that. And so he's, I mean, he's got plenty of combat experience. I was kind of hoping that I mean, we're we'll end up on his side of the aircraft. So I could kind of, you know, get the gist of how this is your way into bit. it. Yeah. Yeah. up and down. That's not how it happened. And so I'm on the minigun and come around and they gave us the cleared hot. And, you know, uh, as soon as you, you hear it cleared and you hot comes out of the mouth, the pilot's, you know, you know, whatever gun is facing the target, you know, right up open fire. And, uh, you know, so we set up and fire, you know, let loose. And, uh, yeah. Uh, at that point from where I was, we were probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand meters out. Uh, I think we had descended down to maybe like 500 feet. So you're pretty close. Uh, you know, you get a pretty good, uh, visual on the auto and I mean that minigun did what it's supposed to do so and uh yeah that was my first engagement and, uh, yeah it was, that was a good time So first
0: tick uh first yep. fire support mission and you <clears throat> took uh yeah. two dudes lives two bad dudes lives how many yep. like like you know I've seen these miniguns this is the m134 bravo was it
1: yeah m134 um uh, we, so the, it's the M134, right? Yeah. And then for the aviation platforms, we we put a, what's called a GAU, um acronym on front of all of it. So the M134 for the aviation platforms is the, the GAU-17. The Huey is the only aircraft in the Marine Corps inventory that carries the GAU-17 with the exception, I think the Osprey tried to, they tried to outfit one on an Osprey using an Xbox controller to shoot you know, at the bottom. It didn't work. Um, so we're the only ones that got it. So, uh, yeah, 3000 rounds a minute. Uh, I think some versions, some variants you can, uh, up the rate of fire to like 4,000 rounds a minute, but it's just a six barreled, uh, rotary electrically operated Gatling gun. And you, uh, you can load it with all sorts of rounds, right? So mm. you got just regular ball ball ammo. You've got tracer rounds. You've got uh, armor piercing rounds, um, incendiary, tracing rounds. Uh, so you got all these these things. So if you want, every fifth round is a tracer round, right? Just just so we can track where the rounds are going. So it looks like a laser beam coming out of this, you know out of the gun, and I mean it's. It's fucking cool, especially yeah. at night. You know, there's there's no greater feeling than you know putting, the, putting rounds on target with a minigun. So yeah, it's cool.
0: <laughs> and there you was how- <laughs> there was no movement from those two guys. They Oh <laughs>
1: uh, no I no mean, no it was good. I think it was a starter. So like I don't know how to explain. it. So when we got the cleared hot, I was. We we're probably nose facing, you know, the bad guys here. We're nose-on with them. So as soon as we started that left turn, I'm on the right, right side of the aircraft. Um, however long it takes to do a full, you know, turn to where I can no longer see them. Uh, I mean that's several seconds and I didn't run off that entire time. And so I mean, I almost went Winchester on there on the can, so almost right out. <gasps> Yeah, man, it it was a. That, that, yeah, to answer your question, there was absolutely no movement. Uh, fuck yeah, awesome mission success. It was a, it was a good time.
0: And so you fly back, mission success, as you said. You get back. How are you? Like you're just like, you you, you, you didn't ease into it. You almost went Winchester on the on the mini. Yeah. Air. You know,
1: you're inside the aircraft. You are getting the all like, Attaboy's. You know, fuck yeah good shots. And everybody's pumped, you know, with the exception of of Greg Westoff, the, my other crew chief. The other two guys have never, you know, deployed to combat either. I think they've done a couple of years. Um, So for the most part, we're all kind of like virgins at this yeah. point, you know? So yeah, it's all, fuck yeah, that was amazing. You know, did you did you get it on the FLIR? You know, because that, everything that you do, especially, you know, engagements you try to make sure that you record it so you can go back and you know for training purposes for recording purposes so you know that's the first some of the one of the first questions you ask is like did you get that all clear um and did you oh yeah we did it i, I don't think we missed maybe a couple that were like send it through send it uh, through mate I, I don't have them no well, <laughs> actually i do have a yeah we'll, we'll talk about it uh, <laughs> yes Adam, I don't know if I'm supposed to have it, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hit you up with it. Yeah. 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 Right. Yes. Everybody. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So as yeah. you said, you get back, how's your back in your, in your bunk and were you just like, I'm, I'm ready now. Like That's, that was my introduction of popped my cherry.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say i like, I felt like confident in my, uh, my abilities or, or skills at that point, but I was, um, you know, you have that, that sense of, like, you know, right? the training up to this point has has worked. You know, I, I, uh, I got to put it to practical use, you know, um, what we've pretended to do for the last, you know, several months, a year, um, that this is the real deal and um, it wasn't all for nothing. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I was just ecstatic, man. It was, it's, I mean, like, I, I look, I, I'm not trying to, like, glorify death or, you know, taking some, but, you know, I didn't have, I, to this day, I've never had, like, an issue with anything that we've ever done, you know.
0: No, no. no so, mate, so you shouldn't. Yeah. Mate, I mean, these do- I, I want to glorify those deaths. They deserve yeah. to die. They're pieces of shit that deserve to die. So I'll okay. glorify it.
1: Yep, and, and I mean some of the things that you know going forward under the deployment that we witnessed, and some of the things that we saw that these you know these people were, were capable of uh, and were willing to do to other human beings was uh, an additional motivating factor. You know that we, you know, what we were doing was the was the right thing, and uh, those people if you want to call on people, um, you know, didn't deserve to, to walk this earth again. Yeah.
0: And thank you. Thank you for your service.
1: I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad I was chosen to, you know, in those instances, uh, you know, take them away from the earth. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Now, up until the 30th of August, how many, like how many times are we talking? You, you deploy March, so a couple of months in. How many times are you on jobs like this Close yeah, so um,
1: I can't. I want to say we'd be on a, uh, you'd be on a flight schedule probably three or four times a week, um, you know, and you can fly from. We would do twelve-hour shifts, right? Some night crew, day crew, um, and I mean, you could fly that entire twelve hours. You could fly. None of that twelve hours. it was dependent on what was going on, uh, you know, in theater. So, they were, very seldomly would you fly like two days in a row. We just had so many, you know, pilots and so many crew chiefs that, you know,
0: unless there was a big
1: operation that was going on, like, you know, what was going on in uh, up north in TK on August 30th, uh, the majority of the time, yeah, you'd fly probably every other day. Or so. Engagements is pretty busy. I mean, springtime, summertime appointments just historically are uh, pretty busy. It's warm out and, you know, they're out hooking and jabbing when it gets cold. You know, everybody goes, goes of into shelter and, you know, they're not as active. So, I mean, I mean probably once or twice a week you get to do a good engagement. Sometimes you just shoot. You know to suppress a fire or whatever, just to you know put some heads down. But uh, oh, once or twice a week you're getting into a good, legit engagement. And, you know, here you're, you're killing bad guys. I mean, we uh, and we kept we kept a tally of that. I don't know if it's how uh, I don't know. We thought it was. is a a cool thing, but we had this big board out, like it was a piece of one of the old helicopters um, is outside of our squadron. And we keep track of, you know, uh, BKIA and uh, you know, CASVACs and things like that. So we had like a running tally of all those things. So it was kind of cool to watch it, you know, the evolution of it throughout the deployment. And I mean, that type of thing was full by the time we left.
0: What, Uh, what, What are we talking for?
1: Uh, I mean like eight hundred. Uh, I, th- I have a picture of it actually. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Send it, send it through, mate. Yeah. Um, I know. Like close to 200 plus. Oh, that's brilliant. Good work. Yeah. And I mean, that's. that's. boy. That's, you know, we got Cobras and Hueys out there. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a busy deployment. It was, it was a good time.
0: Now up until the 30th of August again, were there any other times where, you know, any mishaps or any close calls?
1: No, not on our, uh, not within our squadron. Uh, we, I flew a mission, uh, one of the CH-53, uh, actually was, we were flying escort for them and on short final, they took, uh, I think it was a 50 round, like a disco or something. Went through uh the Hyde system, hydraulic system. Um, and they lost complete hydraulic power. So, you know, you can't operate any of the controls really. It's super hard, especially on a helicopter of you know that size on a CH fifty three. If you I'm sure you've seen them. They're they're giant fucking flying school buses, but bigger. Um You know, trying to control that, just manhandling it, it, it's it's not going to work out well. And uh, so they, from pretty high up, they had to plop it down and uh, they did a forced landing and the crew chief, one of the crew chiefs, uh, I can't remember if she, I know she hit her face on the 50 cal um, and I mean, shattered her jaw her face was all jacked up and somewhere in the accident, she, I don't know she severed an artery or something. She ended up losing her leg in it, but we, uh, that was the only Marine Corps mishap that I remember leading up to August 30th. Um, there was, you know, a couple Blackhawks out towards, uh, Kandahar that got shot down with by cheats, I think. Um, but other than that, there wasn't like, nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. So, mate, let's let's move on to that day, uh, mate. Yep. R- run me through it. Let's run start through that day.
1: So, uh, I guess just for context, um, like I said, our primary focus when we were there, the Marine Corps in general is kind of the Helmand River Province, right? So, it's mostly flat. You know, desert land. You have some lush areas, but it's all flat. I can't tell you how close to sea level it is. I think it's like three thousand feet or so above sea level. Um, but it's pretty, pretty easy terrain to operate in. The week or so leading up to August thirtieth, we got uh, tasked with supporting uh, Task Force sixty six. So, uh, two commando Australians. We are doing, I think, primarily counter drug um, type operations up in the mountains near Taran cout. So, common River Province is the southwest kind of portion of the the country. Up towards TK, you start going a little further north. The elevation changes drastically. Right, you're up into the mountains, ten thousand feet plus. I think um, it snows up there. We haven't seen snow and okay. took you know, however long. So we got tasked to go up there and support them, you know, whatever they needed, um, doing assault support, so inserting guys, um, you know, sniper teams wherever they needed to go, if there's, you know, recon teams or whatever. Uh, we were to pick them up, plop them wherever they needed to go, and then fly overhead, provide close air support if needed. So the couple of days leading up to August 30th, uh myself, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Trevor. Uh, he's a gunnery sergeant at the time. Um, uh, Ryan Layton, who was with me that night, and Greg Westoff uh, was another crew chief. We were kind of the the main team, I, and with we had several pilots, I think, but. Our focus for that week, I think, for the most part, was was up there supporting them. So we were, you know, kind of getting acclimated to the area. We were running missions, um, did a couple nighttime drops, uh, inserted um, Merv and, and Nate's team a couple nights prior on a on an operation up in the mountains. Got pretty sporty up there too, but it was. I mean, it was different. We weren't. We had briefed the. Kind Of the, the AO, you know, we were going to be up doing high altitude landings. Uh, the, the moon dust, um, I mean, if you've been Afghanistan, you're familiar yeah, with this.
0: Bull dust, we called it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's essentially talcum powder, right? It's super fine dust. And when you come to land a helicopter in it, that ship flies up in the air and it does not fall, it just stays at you know suspended and it makes. It turns, you can see everything to seeing absolutely nothing in, in a matter of seconds. So it makes makes operating up there uh, uh, it, uh, an interesting endeavor, uh, to say the least. So we're up there operating, right? And then we've had a couple of days to kind of get used to the area. And then August 30th was kind of, I, I don't really know if it was, it was one of the bigger operations. You know, We they got the uh, a few of the Ospreys involved, the 53s. And that night, our mission again was to, to support uh, Nate and Merv's team. Uh, we have two sniper elements. Uh, there was two, two Hueys supported by two Cobras, right? So over there, anytime we fly, if it's a Cobra or a, a Huey, we're supported by a Cobra, right? We, Flying in a two aircraft team, um, kind of a hunter killer type scenario. If you if you will. So, uh, so we had two two Hueys, two Cobras. Both Hueys were filled to the gills with with Australian snipers. I had Nate, Merv, um, and to be honest, I, I wasn't really you know familiar with anybody. We we had talked you know in in passing over the past few days Uh, everybody was super super cool uh you know we all got along Uh, there's you know no animosity or anything like that i don't know when it would be but uh it's cool it was a a pleasant experience leading up to that night Um, so the assault element was going to land on ospreys kind of the it's like a triangle-shaped valley, if you want to say. So there's two kind of ridge lines, not ridge lines. Below is a, a small village. Both helicopters, both of our helicopters, were going to land on those ridge lines simultaneously, insert the cyber teams, peel off, fly around, and if they needed, you know, air support, we were going to give it to them. Wow, and those Nate and Merv's teams... Where to provide sniper overwatch for the assault guys, you know, storming the, the village below. <laughs> so uh, I think we had, I want to say eight guys, uh, including Nate and Merv on air, aircraft. We launched out of TK, turn out. It was late, probably midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning. I can't remember. Uh, we take off. We're flying, you know as, as our flight out there what was kind of abnormal for what we were doing up there is typically when we when we do inserts and stuff we'll kind of overfly the, our landing zone right just to get a, our eyeballs on it make sure you know the was is clear there's you know if there are any obstacles we can account for those uh, there's you know wind direction or you know if there's bad guys in there, whatever, we fly over and do a recon pass. On this night, we were to plot a GPS point on one of the ridge lines. We we're gonna fly low level and do what's called a pop up approach. So we we're gonna fly under the like below the ridge line, military crest or whatever you want to call it. Pop up at the last second and then plop the helicopter down, hoping that we were on the right spot. So we're, you know, both aircraft are approaching our respective LZs. Um, We're flying below the ridgeline. We pop up and I'm on the left side of the aircraft this night. Um, Brian is on the right side of the aircraft. Uh, We're filled to the gills. We have two M240s on on each side. We weren't carrying the big guns that night. Didn't have rocket pods. Couldn't be up high altitude. We needed all the power we could get. So... You know, we do our little pop-up approach. We spot the zone, or what we thought was the zone. And we start doing our approach. And from what I remember, we got down to maybe 10, 10 feet or below uh, from touching down. Brown out kicked up. So all that, you know, moon dust, talcum powder shit kicked up. And I mean, it, it happened damn near instantly. Usually it'll start at the tail and it'll kind of slowly evolve until it fully envelops the aircraft. And we came up, popped in, and just everything disappeared. I, from what I remember, I think before we actually got enveloped in the, the brownout, we kind of realized that where we were positioned, uh, we were trying to touch down, wasn't exactly the spot where we had plotted you know, it was kind of further up the ridgeline on a more flat spot. So I remember the pilots, you know, somebody saying, hey, you know, let's either reposition or uh, slide right. I can't remember exactly. But I remember looking at the back of the tail. At this point, we're completely enveloped. You know, I over the radio, you know, I say uh, blind back left. Meaning, I can't see anything. The pilots had already, already reported that they were blind up front; they can't see anything. So we're down to Ryan on the right side, uh, which quickly after I see that we're blind on the left side here, blind right side. So nobody can see anything. We haven't touched the ground. Nobody can. I mean, we're flying blind, literally, uh, on uneven terrain on a ridge line, and you know, I got this like pit in my stomach feeling like this, this is not good. Right. We've, we've done these brownout landings a hundred bazillion times leading up to this. They always happen the same way. Every time we, you know, we know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. I I don't know what to do at this point. Typically if you brown out and you lose complete reference outside of the aircraft, uh, you wave off the, the approach, right? So you pull max power, you Climb straight out, and then you know if you give up your position, you give up your position. But at least you don't you don't crash into the ground. I briefly remember looking towards the tail, and I saw the ground by the tail rotor, and I could tell we were drifting right. So that's the last thing you want to do. You don't want to be sliding left or sliding right when you can't see anything, right? Because you don't know what's to the left and the right of you. So I remember. Seeing that we were sliding right, so I call it over the radio, sliding, you know, hey, we drifted right, uh, you know, come back left. Maybe no more than a second after I give that radio call, Ryan on the right side is screaming power over the radio. Power, 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 meaning, you know, pull Max Collective and get us the fuck out of the position we're in. or And... Just for context, Brian Layton, he's a gunny at the time. Is at the time was probably the most experienced crew chief in the entire Marine Corps. Um, several combat deployments to Iraq. Um, you know, supported. I want to say he was. He supported some, some uh, operations that you know are as well known as. Enduring freedom, or whatever, it maybe uh, several several thousands flat thousands of flat hours. Dude was he was the the crew chief manager, right? So he was in charge of all of the crew chiefs for the entire unit. So I was with the most experienced guy in the entire unit, right? And in, in, in the entire Marine Corps, for that matter. The tone over the radio of his voice yelling power is something that like, I get like goosebumps right now thinking about it because it was, I got to at that point, we're fucked at the, you know, we're going to die. It was, uh, it was like a blood curdling scream. And I remember we impacted on the right side because I had, you know, NVGs on. I can see outside. Um there's still a bunch of dust, but I'm still looking out the the left side of the aircraft trying to you know gather any reference I can before we get packed. So when he yells power, my head's still outside of the aircraft. And we sit on these these seats that we we fashion ourselves. They're just 50 50 cal ammo cans that we put a little piece of foam and wrapped in some shitty leather and screwed into the top of these ammo cans. And that's what we sat on. Not very safe. They're not like crash rated for anything. Um, So we're, I'm sitting on that leaning outside. I hear power, power, power. And then I feel, you know, my whole body gets slammed into the right side behind me. So I'm slammed up against the wall and Right after the impact, we start sliding backwards. Um, we hit this like I guess like the the base of the valley when we drifted, we came off one of the ridge lines, kind of descended and drifted right, and then smashed into the other the other ridge line, right so at this point we're sliding down backwards. Uh, I'm staring at the stars because we're on the right side of the aircraft, I'm facing up, and I just remember you know, looking up at the stars and I've got my hands like wherever I can grab my feet are plastic, like planted up against the the mount for the the gun. And I'm just thinking like any second now it lights out, you know, it's, it's over just expect, I don't know, you know, helicopter explode or, you know, get ejected or, you know, fall off a cliff. I don't know. But the aircraft finally, you know, After what seemed like an eternity of sliding down this mountain, is probably not even that far. um, Comes rest. The engines, the rotors aren't aren't spinning anymore. Obviously, because they've done been ripped off. Uh, But the engines, I remember vividly. Inside my helmet, you know, we've got intercom systems. You're getting a bunch of alarms going off low rotor, low rotor. No shit. The fucking rotors ripped off the helicopter. Of course, it's low rotor. But, hearing all of those stuff and I can hear the engines. It's quiet. You know, it's perfectly quiet outside, but you've got these two giant turbine engines just screaming like you've never heard. And then, I remember like, Just laying there for a second, trying to get my bearings. Like, am I still alive? You know, uh, is everybody else alive? There's no way, like, anybody survived this, you know? Uh, And then I could hear the pilots, like, talking to each other through the intercom system, you know, and they were, like, really, really quiet but they're going through the shutdown procedure. So they're, you know, cutting fuel, rolling throttles off, turning the, you know, turning all the systems off. So I can hear that. And finally the engine shut down and it's dead quiet. I mean it's absolutely silent. I look down. So at this point I I was facing it up. So the, my side of the aircraft facing upwards towards the sky. So I can stand what would have been where my back is, right? I stand up on top of that. And I look, I can look down through the cabin and see the ground. And it's just a pile of, of bodies. Right. And just see people all tangled up. <clears throat> and f- there's a couple guys like kind of wriggling around, but I was like, man, everybody's fucking dead down there, you know, or like critically injured. So I grabbed my M4, um, it was tucked behind the seat. Luckily it didn't get thrown out of the helicopter. Take my gunner's belt off. So we wear this like harness thing that hooks to the helicopter to prevent us from getting ejected. Um, take that thing off, grab my M4. It's funny. We, on base, you had to carry a weapon around, but you couldn't carry around in the chamber. So life it's this yeah, bureaucracy. Um, so I didn't have a round in my chamber. I just grabbed my gun and I just stuck my rifle. I'm like, I'm a crew chief, so I don't fucking use a rifle. So I just stuck that thing in there. And uh, But I remember I like, jacked around in the chamber and I stood up to look outside the aircraft. And all I see is these dudes sprinting at the aircraft. I've got my MDGs. I can, they're, they're still working. They're kind of out of focus. Uh, but I see these dudes just fucking sprinting up this hill towards the aircraft. I was like, oh, bro. who else is it going to be besides, you know, bad guys that just watched this fucking crash our helicopter? So, you know, I raised my rifle uh, and luckily one of the, one of the guys in an Australian accent yells, blue, blue, blue. I was like, Holy fuck, bro. Like, I almost, I almost shot you, which I probably would have lost that gunfight. But, you know, I was, uh, I don't know what else to do, Uh, but turns out, uh, what is his name? Uh, He was on your podcast. Uh, Who's who's the uh, what is his name? I forget. Anyways, I I hit him um, up. Goodwin. Yes, yeah, yes. We talked. Yeah, yeah. After I heard your guys' podcast, I hit him up. Turns out it was him that I uh, pointed my rifle at. So if you're listening to this. I apologize. Uh, But yeah, so luckily we didn't have a, uh, you know, we're on blue. Uh, That would have been unfortunate. But yeah, so those guys got up there. And so I jumped down and I'm trying to get like accountability of, uh, to be honest, it was, it's kind of selfish looking back at it now, but like my guys, my, my crew, luckily both of my pilots climb out. And, uh, so I'm like running around frantically looking for, for Ryan. I can't find him spent probably two or three minutes running around. Like, did he get fucking thrown out of the helicopter? Is he up on the hill somewhere? Have no idea where he is at this time. You know, dudes are finally, you know, our, our customers, the, the snipers are are starting to climb out of the, the helicopter. Thankfully. And they're doing the same thing, kind of getting a a roll call and accountability of their guys. I'm looking for for Ryan still, but I hear, you know, hey, um, you know, where's where's Nate? And then, you know, hey, where's Merv? So we're all kind of looking, you know, we've got three guys unaccounted for at this point. And, you know, we have no idea where they're at because... The way Nate and Merv were positioned under the aircraft, like it, it wasn't readily like apparent that they were, they were, they were under there. So we're all kind of like looking around, scanning, trying to figure out where they're at. And so I'm like, well, maybe they're under the helicopter. So I go to the cockpit side, you know, up towards the front of the helicopter, and I look under. Under one of the, the doors that the pilots you know get in and out of, and I see what I, I thought it was like a rucksack up under the the pilot's door. I'm we go, you know, what is that? So I start digging, and you know, I could feel, and you uh, I quickly realized that it was a rucksack. Um, you know, it was it was a person, it was a human being. Um, So, you know, we, everybody gets under there and we start digging and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to dig a hole and shortly thereafter, you know, Ryan comes walking out and he's like covered in dirt and it's like, what the fuck, man? Where the fuck were you at? And he like can barely talk, but he like mumbles out you know stuck under the aircraft <clears throat> so was like holy shit how do you like how did you get out and over like conversation over the next couple of minutes you know he essentially had to dig himself out from underneath the helicopter so he had gotten f- when we impacted and kind of rolled We all wore those gunner's belts, right? To keep us from getting ejected outside of the aircraft. But none of us, you can adjust the length of it, right? These things go super long to the point where we could stand outside on the skid of the helicopter, like our body's fully outside. You're not supposed to do that, right? You're supposed to keep it short enough to where if something happens, you don't end up on the exterior side of the helicopter. But none of us did that. So he had it fully extended. So when we rolled, he gets wrapped up, thrown out of the helicopter and up towards like the engines are on the top of the helicopter, so he ends up getting rolled up there, drags as we're sliding, drag down the hill and then fold it over and in half essentially so his head is like essentially where his knees are. So he's stuck under the aircraft buried in dirt, and the dude was had enough, you know, He's cognizant enough, and I don't know adrenaline or what, but was able to get his belt off and dig himself out from underneath the helicopter. And uh, yeah, so, anyways, so we spent the next I don't know I can't tell you how long um, trying to dig those those guys out. Um, you know, we had like small shovels and using our hands. You you gotta imagine that helicopter's 19,000 plus pounds. Um, Yeah, we weren't. We could try to dig a hole. At one point, we tried, like, we had this big, bright idea that we were all gonna get underneath the helicopter and, like, shoulder it and lift it. All, like, 10 of us lifted 19,000 pound helicopter, of which Ryan, um, tried to to assist with that. So we got underneath the helicopter and we started And Ryan was standing in front of me and I remember he put his shoulder underneath and we all kind of did one, two, three. And as soon as we went to try to shoulder this thing, Ryan collapsed. And uh, that's the point we figured out that there was probably something more uh, serious and I don't even think he complained. Like, I don't even think he said like, you know, my back hurts. You just kind of crumbled. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to take a knee for a second. And then some of the, some of the commandos, um, like, man, you're, you're probably fucked up. You, you took a good spill, you know, well, let's, let's get you on a, one of those, what is this? Sket kill, one of the fucking collapsible litters, Let's just put you in there for, for, uh, you know, just a safety measure. And uh, finally got him into that and after, you know, he was kicking the stream the whole time. He didn't want to fucking lay down in that litter and get carried out. But So after some time, it was probably, I don't know, 30 45 minutes. It took uh, dust off the medevac uh, Blackhawks to, to get out to us. And the air crew, all of us left together. The, uh, the commandos stayed for a while. I don't know. They, uh, they stayed for a while after we left, we got on the, the Blackhawk and, um, flew back to TK and Ryan got carried into the, the, the little hospital they have there. But I don't know. It's like a roll three or something.
0: But they had a an
1: X ray machine, and he went in there and they did X rays on him. He had several fractured vertebrae, and he was he was in bad shape. But yeah, I had to call his wife. I, I mean, I had never talked to this man's wife. We, I mean, we didn't even really talk. He was the you know the head honcho, crew chief. He's kind of his. He was kind of this like I don't know an enigma. Like he's a he was uh, like a god in our eyes. You, you don't dare speak to him unless spoken to, you know. And he didn't like portray that type of thing, but that's just kind of how we we held him in a high regard. So you know, he get to the hospital and he asked me to call his wife for him. I was like, Fuck, man! So I have to call call this man's wife and, and tell him that. Hey, sorry. You know, we uh we rolled a helicopter and uh Ryan broke his back. Uh, he's you know, he'll be home shortly. it was a, uh, it was a weird call to make, but. so he uh he was still waiting for a, a transport out. They were gonna fly him to Kandahar and then let him on a C seventeen and took him to to Landstuhl, Germany. Uh, before any of that happened, they brought Nate and Murph back. So that was the first time that I saw uh, the boys since we, you know, left them on the on the mountain. And we did the, you know, we stood out there and gave the the salute as they they brought him, brought him from the helicopters and. Yeah, yeah, man, it was it was a tough deal. So. Yeah, fuck. <clears throat> it's
0: absolutely wild, mate, just to hear that side of the story and that deep into it. Yeah. Mate, um well you know, what time are we talking by the time the two boys rocked up?
1: Um we probably made it off the mountain. It was close to 3 or 4 a.m. I mean, we were up there for a while before the, the medevac guys got up there from the time we went down until the time we got medevaced. And then we were, I mean, it was daylight. I think it was late morning, maybe close to noon by the time they got them, them out. Because after we left, Pedro, uh, the Air Force pararescue guys, you know, that's, that's their bread and butter is you know, you know, rescuing you know, guys behind enemy lines. They, uh, they flew out of, I think those guys came out of Kandahar. Uh, they're actually, um, uh, they're actually, a uh, air force guard unit out of Alaska. The guys that came, they, uh, so they flew out of, I think they were out of Kandahar. They made it, may have came out of Basham. I don't know, but they flew up there. They had all their tools, execution tools, it took them a good while to rip that helicopter apart to get to, to Nate Merv. Uh, you know, using hydraulic lifts and saws and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it took them a while. And then the flight time from from the mountain back to where we were at in TK. Yeah, it was it was late morning. Yeah. Um
0: What what happens for you for the next couple of days? Like what what what's, what what's going on in your mind as well?
1: You know, the, the shittiest part of that whole thing was, and, you know, it's just the nature of the beast, is we there was still an operation going on, right? By the time our dash 2 so the other, the second Huey, they uh, they stayed on station that whole time, you know, providing overhead, so Ray Cobras uh, and Trevor Hooten, which he's my best friend to this day, uh, he was actually the other crew chief in the other helicopter. Watch me crash, you know. Uh, and, you know, I can only imagine if the roles are reversed, you know, watching your best friend, you know, long dart it. Uh, how shitty a situation that that would be. But anyways, so they stayed on station for a while because they're still doing, the, you know, they continued the assault, I think. I don't know if they, they scrubbed it because of the mishap, Um, but they were out there, you know, still hiking and jabbling. And we, Trevor and, and the crew came back. They picked me up. Me and the the two pilots loaded in the back of their Huey. And then we had to go back out to the crash site to provide an escort for the, uh, the 53. That was the CH 53. That was coming to to terror with the helicopter. So, you know, I just you know, just potentially watching my my partner, you know I thought he was dead at one point, you know, and then I watched him fly away in the c C one thirty, uh, with potentially life threatening injuries. Um, watching, you know, two guys uh in the air get get carried back in, in caskets. Well, um, and then have to get back in the fucking helicopter and fly back to the crash site, so like I can watch them pick up the fucking hunk of junk that you know we just planted in the middle of nowhere it was kind of insult to injury. Uh, but so it was it was tough to uh, to just go back out there and you know watch that That's and important. then yeah yeah it's just. You know, they, I, I can't tell you, I'm not one of the decision makers. i you know, I was a, I was a uh, very low man on the total pole when it comes to their overall grand scheme of things. So, but I, I imagine there wasn't a lot of, you know, assets out there that could provide escort for the 53, especially since we had to go back to bash <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Sorry. Um. We had to fly back to Bastion anyway. So did the 53 because we were all stationed together. Uh, I guess it kind of made sense that we would just pick them up along the way back. But like I said, it just it was, a, it was shitty to have to all for all three of us. You know, the two pilots and myself. We could sit there, and fly around for another hour and a half while they, you know, pick this thing up. But. The next, next few days, it was kind of a blur. You know, you get back and go through the whole typical mishap process. So they took it pretty seriously. So you know, we all had to go take piss tests and sit down with the psychologist and talk about our experience. And um, had a talk with some seer specialists since, you know, technically we went down behind enemy lines. You know we had to talk about the all of what happened and how we handled the situation and any lessons learned and all of that stuff. and then the then the accident review board uh, happens, and that's when you go up in front of the command staff, uh, it's a panel of uh, you know the upper echelon of the squadron. I don't think the CO is there. Maybe the XO, um, the operations officer, the safety and standardization officer. I think, and they just uh, grill you on what what went down, and they're ultimately determining if you're uh, if anything that you did or did not do contributed to the mishap. And then ultimately, if you're ever going to fly again, so it's kind of a nerve-wracking, you know, uh, situation to be in. Because you know, even after that, I still wanted to fly. You know, I wanted to get back out there and and continue doing what what we were out there to do. But you know, potentially having that the fate of not being able to ever do that again, paying in the balance, was was a uh, uh kind of a dreadful situation but you know just went in there and answered the questions and told them what happened they let me fly again so but, I mean it was stressful but it is what it is so
0: so when you say they let you fly again you're straight back out on the horse and straight back into it
1: no so I flew I think I flew one more time um on that deployment, but they, uh, since, since the accident, they, uh, they put me on what's called Advon to come back. Uh, so we, we were responsible for taking all the, uh, the aircraft that we were demobilizing, I guess, uh, and take them back to the States earlier than the rest of the squadron. So it was a small contingent of guys uh, taking a couple aircraft back and, uh, a few maintainers. We were all coming back early from that deployment. And since the accident, they just said, "Hey, you know, why don't you? Why don't you go back to Advan? Um, you know, take care of yourself. And, you know, we'll we'll handle it the rest of the way. There's only you know a couple months left in the deployment, anyways." So I think I only flew one more mission. It wasn't even. I don't even think I flew a mission. I think it was a. Uh, we do this, like test flights. So after you do maintenance, you got to fly the aircraft to make sure that it works right. right. Yeah. like so I think I flew one of those. And there, it was funny. the The night that I was supposed to leave, uh, or the the night before, uh, the base got attacked. So we had uh, seven guys, Taliban dudes. Cut a hole in the wire and just walked walked on in and moseyed on into the into the airfield and uh, started lobbing RPGs at the the squadron right next door to us. Uh, they were a Harrier jet squadron. Uh, blew up every one of their Harriers and ended up killing. Uh, they shot their commanding officer, killed him, Lieutenant Colonel Rabel. And then one of the avionics technicians, uh, he was shot and killed, Sergeant Atley. But yeah, that was a that was a wild night. We uh, we were getting gunfights on the on the airfield and launched uh, uh, a couple Hughes and a couple of Cobras, and they were doing gun runs on the airfield, like right yeah. next to our squad bases. Yeah, like we had a cryogenics lab uh, where they kept all like certain electrical components and weapons components that had to stay super super cooled uh, to the uh, to the Taliban dudes took that cryogenics lab and held themselves up in there and I mean it was probably 50 yards 60 yards from where all of our barracks were our barracks rooms. you know you got those big HESCO barriers you protects know, mm. so we're like picking up over the, the HESCO barriers and Fifty yards away, they're launching Hellfires in this building. You know, and twenty mic mic rounds going into this thing. It was pretty sweet. It was it was a cool, cool show. It was a it was tragic that we you know lost two Marines, but they uh they crushed those dudes that that uh, that made it in there. So yeah, so that extended my stay for like a, a week because they I don't know blew up portion of the, the runway, So the C-17 couldn't take off, so I had to stay a little longer. It was worth it. But. So just to
0: top it off, the Taliban attack it in the last couple of days. Yeah. Back, yep. back to the yep. United States, bait And so this is what, say, end of 2012? Yep. And then the next year in a bit, you're just contemplating – Discharging.
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> end of 2012, my contract ended in 2014. Um, you know, with everything that had happened and just some some personal stuff going on in my life, I was really contemplating getting out there. At the time, there was a uh, a program. We were s- kind of starting the drawdown in Afghanistan so they were allowing marines to get out early it's called a voluntary early release program and you could discharge up to like a year sooner than your your contract you know allowed for it. and uh you know my buddy trevor uh, that's what he did he got out like 6 months or maybe a year early and i was really thinking about it but i uh, i decided to, to ride it out Yeah, I mean, the the last couple of years, I was just went to a training unit and um, you know trained some of the the new recruit chiefs and kind of just plugged along and finished you know, just wrote out the rest of the my my uh, my enlistment. Uh, yeah, right. So you
0: you just discharge what uh, you got out of the military two thousand fourteen. You go back to college to become a pilot, yeah, well, a civilian pilot.
1: I started college.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Started college. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It was not a. Uh, up to that point, I had no real desire to, to go to college. But so, like I said, you know, before I joined the Marine Corps, what I really wanted to do was uh, was be a pilot. So, at the time, the VA Veterans Affairs. You know, they mm. provide a bunch of benefits for, for veterans. So they pay for college, right? At that time they were doing a, a thing where you could uh, do flight training, either in helicopters or, or airplanes. And as long as it was part of a, a degree program at a college, the VA would cover it a hundred percent of it. So typically when you, know, you go to flight school, for helicopters, especially, it's outrageous and expensive. By the time you you become like a commercial pilot in helicopters, you've done spent, you know, well over a hundred thousand uh, dollars, which is a lot of money for somebody uh, freshly out of the Marine Corps. So, luckily, you know, I went to Oregon uh, and found a school that had a, a little flight school there and started flying helicopters. Did that for a while got got all my ratings in a helicopter and started instructing as a as a flight instructor I realized that there was a not enough money to to support a family doing that by any means so i had to had to adjust and, and find a a new career so which leads me into law enforcement
0: yeah so you obviously you uh look for a career and the police you thought, you know what? Yeah. Let's become a cop.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> amongst wanting to be a, a Marine, uh, a pilot, when I was young, I also wanted to be a cop. And just, just where I was at in life, uh, you know, at that, that period of time, probably 20, late 2015 at this point, uh, I was previously married and, uh, my ex-wife's family, her mom' side of the family is from Mississippi, so backwoods southern, southern place. Uh, but I, uh, I had an opportunity to to go work for a police department there, and uh, I jumped on it. Yeah, so I started law enforcement in in twenty sixteen. Yeah, done. Well, I mean, worked on patrol. When I was a uh, Motor officers, I rode a motorcycle, did that, Uh, was on the SWAT team there. And then after some time I switched departments and, you know, went through divorce, uh, custody battle, all that stuff. And then Later on, got married to my, my current wife now and she's from from Alabama, which is right next door to Mississippi. So eventually we ended up over here in Alabama and copped in Alabama. And yeah, hey man, I love it. It's, it's fun.
0: And how's, how's that been, being, being a cop, you know, you've gone from Afghanistan to becoming a cop. And as we know in the United States, mate, being a cop is quite, it can, it's quite a risky job.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it has its ups and downs for sure. Uh, it's it's kind of the same environment as being in the military right you know, you still get the uh, it's pretty much a paramilitary organization you you get a close knit you know community um, the guys and gals on your shift you're pretty close knit with they it's the the career is is whatever you make it right uh it can be as boring as you want it to be or you can make it you know, exciting and fun. You can go out there and try to find bad guys or, you know, you can just sit in a corner and, and not do shit, you know, for a eight hour shift. It's whatever you want to want to do. So, um, but it has a lot of, a lot of the attributes that I, I took value in in the military, right. Close to that brotherhood, I guess. There's some excitement in there um it's pretty boring for the most part I tell everybody it's you know uh it's the majority of it is is complete boredom punctuated by sheer terror um every once in a while but overall it's good you know i i uh I love my job and it's cool to be able to Get out in the community and, you know, help people when they're in need and go find, you know, the shit bags that need to be behind bars. It's pretty fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, how did you go from switching from a minigun to a, to a pistol?
1: Uh, I was dog shit at a, with a pistol. I'll tell you uh, <laughs> when I first went to law enforcement. I've done sharpen sharpen my uh, my skills a little bit, but uh, it's definitely not a school. You know, it's it's a different set of rules that we play by now. Uh, deed in law enforcement, uh, you have a lot more things to to take into consideration. Primarily, people's uh, constitutional rights, uh, which is a good thing. You know, I I love this country, and I think everybody deserves. to express their and exercise their rights, but it it makes it, it's a, it can be a a difficult puzzle to navigate sometimes, you know, what exactly can and can't do in this job. So it's, it's super important. I tell all the, you know, the newer, newer cops, you know, constitutional laws is super important because that's the type of sheriff that'll land you in prison or, in a civil court case uh, where you're having to pay uh, money that you probably won't ever make in a lifetime to somebody for a decision that you make given a fraction of a second. So super important that you stay sharp enough to date on those types of things, you know. So
0: Yeah, yeah. And Alabama's a pretty fairly free state too.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm fortunate. You know, we live right next door to a pretty large metropolitan area, uh, which, you know, I, I hate politics. I like I'm trying to stay out of politics as much as possible. But um, being in a large metropolitan area has its its uh its challenges, right? Especially for law enforcement. Luckily, we're not there. We're right next door to it, and we're pretty. We're pretty lucky where we're at. We have pretty good support from the community. Uh, We're pretty well liked and respected. Uh, You know, we it goes both ways, right? We we respect the citizens that we are charged with taking care of because they make it easy for the most part where we're at. Uh, But you you know, every once in a while, you get some spillover from these big cities, the bags come to our, our town and think they can wreak havoc and you know they get hemmed up pretty quick. So yeah. But, yeah. Overall it's a good job. Um, it's 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 great. I work for a great department that you know has our back um and takes care of us. We get uh, unlike a lot of agencies, especially in the southeast of the United States, uh, cops are pretty poorly paid poorly equipped you know a lot of a lot of agencies especially in Alabama you get small town cops they, you know, they are buying their own guns they're buying their own you know uh, bullet resistant vests they're buying their own uniforms um, you know we are allowed to take our cars home you know so we don't have to commute to work uh, and our personal vehicles we get you know, uniforms, guns, you know new guns, Great training. Well, I mean, I can ask for a, a better department to work for. So I'm pretty fortunate, man. It's pretty sweet.
0: Yeah, nice, mate. Nice. That's, yeah, it's wild. Cause, that, yeah, we've, I've had a few guys on from the US and the cops and every department's different and funding's different per state, oh, yeah. And it's, it's wild.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, the 2021 era. Yeah. Uh, it was a whole different. It was, uh, Deep on the Yeah. It was, it was, War against the war against law enforcement, but um, you know times times are starting to shift, and you know people are starting to be a little more supportive, and it's good. It's there's it can definitely be improved. Anything can be, you know, improved for sure. Uh, but we're we're kind of aimed in the right direction, and it's good. It's good to see.
0: Yeah, right. Mate, this has been absolutely, uh, again, mate, just incredible to hear your story from that side of the fence. Yeah. Uh, especially the 30th of August, 2012, um, holds dearly in a lot of people's minds and hearts, uh, especially yeah. with the loss of the two boys. And, uh, mate, it's obviously you just continuing it on, you know, just getting back on the horse and...
1: Something
0: like that. Yeah, just move, you know, just continuing on with, with your life, et cetera, and obviously becoming a police officer and still contributing to, um, you know, the, the, the your country, uh, you know, serving your community, which is uh, absolutely awesome, mate. Um, Mate, we're coming up to the end of the, you know, the podcast, mate. And then again, mate, it's, it's, I really appreciate you coming on. But, you know, before we close off, mate, a couple of final questions. Yep. First question: What advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on? You know, complete any goal they set their mind to, and essentially just crush it in life.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, goals, obviously, like you just said, um, that that's a big thing. Have you know, set a target for yourself, and you know, do whatever you have to do to make it happen. Uh, a big thing that i I'm, I'm still, that yeah. I've found value in, um, and it's kind of instigmatized, especially, you know, military and law enforcement is, you know, seeking help, right. Uh, you know, military law enforcement or whatever, you know, you deal with a lot of stuff. Uh, and like I said earlier is that I don't really regret anything, you know, from the time of the military and, and nothing that I did or, or witnessed, I lose sleep over but you know the rest of life happens Uh, you're gonna you're gonna face some challenges and and things that you have to deal with and you know it's you can't be too proud to 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 seek help you know therapy or talk to a psychologist or whatever you need Uh, there's no shame in the game so you know it's sometimes it's a lot for one person to deal with and finding somebody who that's all they that's their specialty man they, they we specialize in you know war fighting and you know crime fighting or what else but these people are that's their specialty is your, your brain and you know how to deal with emotions and, and things like that so um yeah don't be too proud and and you know seek help if you need it but other than that man yeah, these – there's something you want to – you want to accomplish, or something you want to – you want in your life, just fucking do whatever you have to do to make it happen. Yeah, just do it. Just do it, man. It's like like he says. <laughs> just do it.
0: <laughs> mate, uh, second question. What is the plans for the future? As you said, you're a current cop in Alabama. What's the plans, mate? SWAT? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe fly yeah. helicopters again? Maybe for the police?
1: Yeah. I don't know. So I don't plan on on leaving this agency uh, for quite a while. You know, if I can try to retire from here, that'd be great. Uh, but, you know, there's some things that I want to do. Yes, yeah, SWAT's one of them. I was at, on the SWAT team at my last agency. So. Uh, training for that, you know, physical physicality and you know shearing and tactics and all that stuff. Uh, so SWAT, and then you know there's some specialized units that I want to try to get into. Um, but yeah, man, uh, on on the career front, that that's it for for police wise, you know. But other than that, you know, trying to be a good dad, you know, be a good husband, trying to improve myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, just trying to trying to be better than I was today,
0: you know. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, mate. Mate, for whatever reason, let's just say World War Three kicks off and they need some crew chiefs. Are you uh, oh, yeah. getting back on the horse?
1: Oh, it's don't about me. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Or at least I get to be able to minigun. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Mate, uh, third question. Now, mate, outside of being, uh, you know, a military guy, outside of being a cop, mate, tell us something that people don't know about you, you know, a guilty obsession or what do you do in oh. your spare time?
1: That's a hard one, man. Is
0: it food or are you are you a gamer?
1: No, I, I despise cooking. I like eating food. Yeah. I despise cooking. <laughs> um, but yeah. um, mountain biking, I guess. Uh, anything like, I don't know, man. I'm kind of an adrenaline, Jackie. Oh, Formula One. I don't know. I'm like, I have oh. this weird Formula One now, thanks to that. Have you watched that Netflix show? No. Drag-
0: now I've seen uh, it. Is it good? Is it?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say it's good. I don't know, but it's uh, it's drama, drama TV. But I think a, the majority of the, the F1 fan bases exist now because of that show. And yeah. I'm, I'm one of those. See, I have this weird obsession with Formula One. I don't know. What else, man? Mm, Yeah. I mean, mountain biking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah, That's right. I'm pretty boring, man. I I told you before, I I just hang out with the family and work. And, you know, I'm obsessed with work. So I spend a lot of time trying to. Trying to be good at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mate, just quickly, I was, uh, yeah. the photos you sent, you're a tall guy too. How tall are you?
1: <laughs> yeah. 6'6. Six, 6'6. Six,
0: six. Six, six. So, how did you go yeah. fit into a helicopter? Not let alone a police car with, uh, with a vest on? I know I'm 6'4. Yeah. I'm 6'4, six, 6'5. Six, so, I know it's yeah. tough getting into cars with body armor on. The helicopter was by far the,
1: the most difficult thing. So, for, Five straight years, you know, my head would always touch the roof of the helicopter. And so I think I still permanently, like my posture is bad because it scrunched up the whole time. Uh, Police cars, it it depends on what car you get, right? I used to have a a Crown Victoria. Uh, That thing was pretty spacious. And then I got a a Ford Taurus, which is a smaller compactor police car. And that thing, (laughs) like a coffin. Now I've got a big big SUV at Chevy Tahoe, so it's pretty sweet. Stretch especially in there, no problem. But yeah, man. Uh I tell people like being six six is kinda of overrated. You know, the six six one to six four ish range, I guess you know, it's probably the sweet spot, but six six is yeah, no.
0: Unnecessary of- oh, yeah, all. So no, mate, six four, six five's not not good either. I reckon yeah. six two would be perfect, you know. Like especially with yeah. uh, clothing. <laughs> Clothing's the hardest because you everything everything's like a midriff.
1: Yeah, where you get like uh, the big and tall stuff, and it's like a dress it's too one. long, way yeah. too big. You
0: know, yeah, it's it's the worst. I yeah, will feel your pain. I feel your pain.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, man. Uh, oh, one thing. My uh, my middle name is probably the longest middle name. Is it? Is it Hawaiian? Is it? They're, they're, this is the one. Uh, I'm glad I thought of this because I don't. It's not so long. And, uh, so my middle name is Kale Aote Alkekula Alkalani. It's Like 30, Oh my god. Thirty-two. Yeah, yeah. So that's your one uh, weird fact, I guess, about me. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. Is it like uh, are you like that guy from um Forgetting Sarah Marshall? You can name over two hundred fish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no. I'm not that interesting man. Um Yeah, no. It it means something. I, I don't know exactly what it means, but yeah. Yeah. My Hawaiian my Hawaiian father. Had to give me a long middle name. So. What about that spam? Are you into eating spam?
0: Being oh, Hawaiian? So-
1: yeah, yeah, that's Hawaiian. And make and rice for breakfast. What's that you um,
0: try. What's that Hawaiian cuz I go to the US every single year and
1: there's rice uh, spam.
0: Oh, masubi. Oh, fuck,
1: I love love it. Oh, yeah.
0: But there's a Hawaiian uh Hawaiian fast food restaurant. What's it called J, not JJ's. HH LNL. LNL, that's it. That's the Oh, fuck. Yeah,
1: that's my but- favorite. Oh yeah, chicken katsu from L and
0: L. Man, the ribs and just the masuka. Yeah. Ah, oh. I'm going to Vegas. I'll be in Vegas in uh, January. So there's uh, there's an L and L that I always go to. Just outside. There's a of few. Strip. Yeah, yeah. But there's one yeah. that I always go to, and it's my favorite. Yeah.
1: There's there's no L and L in Alabama. Like well, I need to start start a franchise. Yeah. You know, open one. I want here, to bring but... it
0: here to Australia. They need it.
1: Oh, you, you'd kill it. It, it would kill
0: them. it because it is like, um, for the listeners, strained listeners never had it. It is so good. And I love my fast food. I know my fast uh,
1: food. It's, I mean, like, and it's not really fast food. I wouldn't, wouldn't even call it fast no. food, but they're free, you know. But uh, spam's probably not the
0: healthiest part, but it's so delicious. It's, it's,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife hates yeah. it
0: too. I hate she hates oh, it. Does? Yeah, and I trick her sometimes. I will make a fried rice, and I'll I'll dice up spam, and I'll put it in the fried rice. I'm like, "Oh, it's just ham."
1: Oh, it's ham. It's ham. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My wife, when I I first made spam eggs and rice, it's just you scramble some eggs, yeah. you make rice, you rice, and you put spam on there, and then I just drench it in ketchup. She thought it looked like fucking dog food. <laughs> She tried it. That woman is addicted to spare rings. And yeah, so, I'm going to have that for breakfast. Yeah, try it. Yeah, try it.
0: Mate, uh, a yeah. couple more questions. Favorite movie, TV show, maybe even a maybe a military one and a cop one.
1: Ooh, military movie, Black Hawk Down for sure. I had. Uh, I hadn't. just because it has you know the, the Marine Corps thing, but yeah,
0: I had uh, Matt Hark- Evisman on. Huh? I had Matt Evisman. Oh, did, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: need to listen to that. Oh
0: dude. Yeah. I was star uh, tr- I was starstruck.
1: <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Um yeah, that's a great movie. I mean that's that's an epic one of all time. Uh police movie. What is the one with Jake Chillen Uh end of watch. End of watch. Yeah. That, Everyone,
0: a lot of cops say that and they say it's, it really reflects the life. Oh, yeah. Especially American, yeah, yeah. the American way of policing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, end of watch for police movie. Uh, what'd you ask? TV show?
0: Yeah, TV show. Brooklyn Nine-Nine.
1: <sighs> that was <one's> a good. <laughs> such a good TV show. Dude, do, do you want a police and a, a military yeah, show I so. that,
0: Yeah, I guess. Or, or just your favorite in general.
1: Oh, TV show. That's how there's so many good ones, man. Mm. Uh, the Office, probably TV show. The
0: American or the UK?
1: The American. I've never watched the.
0: Yeah, I've never watched the American <laughs> one. I've only watched the UK one.
1: Is the, is the UK one good? Oh, it's way better. I'm sure. sure. Oh, really?
0: You didn't watch that. Yeah, <laughs> no, fair, yeah. no, fair call. Cool. But it's, I don't know. It's It's the original. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and I need a, to watch it. Ricky
0: Gervais,
1: you can't beat Ricky yeah. Gervais. Yeah, well, so far, the American Office is my favorite. Uh, maybe outdone by the UK Office. Uh, cop show. There is a show called the uh, the was it the Pacific Pacific Blue? Uh, I forget uh, what the name of it is. But it was on FX. It's a pretty good one. Uh, Prepare all lizard mod because I can't remember. The yeah, yeah. It it's it's a great one. There's not too many good military TV shows. I mean, Band of Brothers is probably yeah. Did. Not anymore, is
0: there? Uh, all the yeah. older ones, Band of Brothers, and
1: um, yeah, Brothers. Generation Kill. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that one. Is that a TV show? That was That's like a mini, mini yeah, series. I guess. Yeah, but that, that one by far takes a kick yeah I forgot about that thanks for running yeah I should kill for sure. yeah
0: yeah right mate and uh, final question favourites you know you're in the gym or mountain biking you got the earphones in listening to music what are you listening to oh uh, this will define who you are as a person
1: <laughs> 90s rap for sure oh now yeah mm-hmm. big into yeah bad. well probably, you know, I'll throw some like yeah Eminem and- but yeah, 50 cent. But, oh yeah. 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 Early,
0: early two thousands. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And nineties, you know, talk and, uh, NWA and all. that. Uh, yeah. They, they charged that guy with murder murdering. Uh, wow. Yep. Yeah. How legit is that though? Is it legit or is it just a?
1: uh, I don't know. I, I watched, a. A video on them explaining it. Apparently they had known the the feds had known that he had he was involved. He didn't directly shoot him. He's the one that handed the gun back to the the kid that that actually shot. uh, Yeah, right. From what I understand. But he had a a deal with the FBI, I guess, uh, like a non-disclosure, in exchange for his freedom, if he dived out a bunch of it snitched out on a bunch of other people. Um, you know, they wouldn't hem him up on the, the pop murder. But from what I understand, when he was, he started, he wrote a book and then started going on podcasts and started, you know, telling his story and how he was involved in the Tupac murder for for Flame. I guess the feds were like, bro, you know, we told you about to fucking Selling bring this up. If you're making money off of it, we're going to. We're gonna lock you up for it. So, I could. I could be all hogwash, and I'm I may not Tupac's
0: still alive, apparently. He's living in
1: Hawaii. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure. That's I wish you were.
0: That's the word going around.
1: Yeah, he was in the Bahamas at
0: one stage. I think he was living there for one stage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Him and Elvis. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, yeah. Nineties, uh, 90s, nineties 90s, uh, rap. Yeah, early two thousand. So it's some hard, you know, metal too.
0: To Actually, speaking but, of that, like when you're flying around as a crew chief, you know, we know that there was uh, times where there was hard wide uh, radios into, you know, iPods into the systems. Yeah. Were there any time yeah. where you're letting rip with that minigun <sighs> and listen to a bit of, you know, Drowning Pool or something?
1: When we were overseas, not really. Or, um, when we're out like back here on this side, we would on like long cross country flights when it's just boring, straight level stuff. Over there, you know, we are always trying to listen to the radios. Yeah. And, you know, half garbled half the time, anyways. So you can't, you can barely make out what somebody's saying, especially if you you know, comb for fire. So we never really played music. Um, unfortunately, it would have been a good time for it. Yeah. A little pump up. Yeah. Pump up soundtrack. I've yeah. them good. Now, awesome, mate. Yep. Now,
0: um, if for whatever reason people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Social media? Might be uh, some young crew chief, yep. inspiring crew chief out there that wants to become a crew in the U.S.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, my uh, Instagram is Aaron, A-R-I-N, underscore H-A-N-O. H-A-N-O. Uh, then same thing on Facebook. So, yeah, I don't have any cool YouTube channels on, you know. <laughs> You I could, hope. mate, if you've got all those,
0: uh, all those videos, mate. We can make a. <laughs> <laughs> try
1: my hand at TikTok posts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were uh, quite dissatisfied with with watching uh,
0: <laughs> the content.
1: Uh, content of, of the action that Afghanistan. So they were quickly removed, unfortunately. But yeah, which is wild,
0: isn't it? They're happy to get half-naked women up there, but.
1: Yeah, which but, I'm not I'm, dude, not. I'm
0: not complaining about.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no priorities, I guess.
0: But <laughs> no, fair call, yeah. fair call. Um, mate, again, water, water, mate. First off, you know, I appreciate you coming on. Actually, shout out to Kyle Schmidt, um, for yeah. making this happen. You know, he's he's one of those yeah. one of you guys, and I hit him up. I said, mate, I need to find one of these guys that was on this helo. And he goes, within like a couple of hours, he got back to me. He goes, I've got, I've got two of them. I've got the Pete, one of the PJs. And then I've got uh, one of the crewies on the the helo. And I'm like, far out, mate. Must be a, you know, as you said, it's a tight knit community. And someone knows someone that knows someone.
1: That's, that is the one, uh, one of the few good things about social media is how small it's made the world, you know, because, you would asked me five years ago if I'd ever w- would have ran into you know somebody that had an association with Nader Rove, you know, without doing some crazy hard digging, you know, would have thought you were crazy. But you know, just running into somebody who you know happens to know you and then it turns out you know you get a podcast, and I listen to your podcast and I you know hear one of the guys talking about you know, August, the night of August 30th and, you know, detailed recount. of it. Holy shit, man. But yeah, it was wild. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. Um, it's, it's cool to have, have ran into to you guys. I appreciate you having me on here, man.
0: Yeah. No, mate, again, really appreciate you coming on and sharing it again, mate. It's just one of those stories that uh, hits home for a lot of us and it's good, you know, I, I knew the story, but it's great to hear it you know, again, from a different perspective and, you know, as much as you don't want to hear it sometimes, it's just, it's easing on the mind, you know, sometimes. yeah,
1: so it's, it's and like you said earlier, man, it's, it's, this stuff is, you know, it's over a decade ago now and it's kind of, some of the stuff is washing away with time and it's, it's it. important. That
0: exactly. You
1: know, we keep it alive somehow, you know, talking about it is, its is is how we do that, so appreciate you letting me uh come around here and chat about it. Yeah, exactly,
0: so. mate. And, you know, as as you said, just then, you know, it's locking into history and putting out the, the yep. truths of exactly what happened in Afghanistan, what, you know, yourself, myself, commandos, anyone that, you know, served in Afghanistan, what exactly what was going on there. Um, For sure, just, you know outside of what the mainstream media is spewing, especially you know like the CNNs and those, yep. <laughs> the dribble they come out with, and mate, we've got yep. the same media outlets here, and some of these journalists are just spewing the absolute rubbish out of their bum holes, yep. And yep. trying yep. to get That's- their fame. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, mate, again, really appreciate you, and, mate. We'll have to stay in contact. For sure, we'll have to stay in yep. contact, and mate, again, I'm always in the US. I've been to Alabama a few times, and. Yeah, mate. Maybe you can take me for a ride along. Like I'll be, I'll okay. be, I'll be Kevin. Yeah. I'll be Kevin Hart. You can be, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> the rock.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we look a lot alike, don't we?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. in sure. contact, mate. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll chat soon.
1: All right, mate. I appreciate it, man. Thanks,
0: dude. Get some sleep. Oh yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know. I like my coffee, how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the Season campaigner, pour over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and... I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So
1: again, jump onto 30 and grab yourself a supply.